Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com, where you can read stock ideas written up by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. And now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How is everybody doing out there today? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, the Focus Compounding Podcast. Jeffrey Gannon, how's it going? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It is going great. We hope everybody is having a great week. This is the part two of our rapid fire questions that have been asked mm-hmm. of us. And we're going to chat about them. If you do want to ask questions of us, feel free to either email info at focuscompound.com, Gannon on investing at gmail.com, or follow me at Focus Compound on Twitter mm-hmm. and tweet me. And a lot of times, like I said, I'll just put them on a spreadsheet and or screenshot them, and then we'll just uh, dedicate a full podcast to go over your questions. And it's, uh, it's great. So we're just going to roll right into it. Okay. We're going to roll right into it. Person actually asked about your latest memo um, mm-hmm. about cloning super investors. Okay. And if you do want to get access to that memo, go to the website, Focus Compounding. That'll put you on our email list if you enter your email, and you'll get that from Jeff every single week. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he says, in his latest memo, Jeff talks about cloning the super investors. I'm also interested in how to best execute a strategy on cloning. I've read that buying the highest conviction position of super investors are not a good strategy for good returns. He says, um, then he proceeds to say, um, let's see, the reason was that those positions are not the ones that have increased most in price since they bought them and are probably not positions they think is the best value at the current price. Right. Maybe it would be the best to look at average buying price of the positions and use that for a buy or sell signal. Yeah, that could be a good idea. So what I talked about in the memo um, uh, is that, you know, obviously one way you could do it is high conviction ideas, but the other way that you'd think about it is what are they buying um, most recently, mm-hmm. right? So I think that probably the best way to do it is, as you just uh, uh, was suggesting that question, which is basically um, the highest conviction ideas are um, the highest conviction buys are mm-hmm. a good idea. So if you see a new ten percent position as a new buy, that's a good idea. Um, and using the uh, average price at which they bought in, and there's lots of sites which give you average price information on it and percentage of the portfolio on it. So um, a high conviction idea at the time they bought it and a price close to when they bought it sounds like a good idea to me. Yeah. Um, Right. I don't know that you'd want to buy something uh, that they've owned for a really long time and that's gone up a lot, which is often the reason why something's really concentrated now. Like they just have owned it and they've never sold it, so it's just become a huge part of their portfolio. Right, which is like Sequoia with Valiant is what happens. So they had a big loss on Valiant eventually. But it's not like um, Valiant had this huge decline from where they originally bought it in the first place. It's that they never trimmed it back and it kept getting bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sure. And actually, Peter Rab over uh, Arco Capital, he talked about that and how there was a fund that he was at that kept it at, let's say, 7%. And every mm-hmm. time it go like to 8 or 9% of the portfolio, they would just trim it back down to 7 So when yeah. the whole Valiant debacle actually happened, they didn't experience such a loss because over the years they made so much money from it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Thought that was interesting. So high conviction buys are a good idea, I think. But you're right that usually when you see a huge holding at a company, that's because it's got at a portfolio. That's because that company has compounded, you know, a mm-hmm. lot, and they've owned it for a long time. I'm gonna let you answer this one. Uh-huh. Uh, he says, "I wonder if there's a single download page where I can download earlier stock write-ups by Jeff for free on Singular Diligence." 
Where can they get all those? Uh, they, if they become a member of Singular Diligence by paying, then they can uh, find all the things that were there. Yeah, and also if you do become a, um, if you become a member at Focus Compounding, they're all on there. All the single Singular Diligence write ups that you did. Yes, they are all there. Um, and I forget how I many there are, like twenty five or something. We said. Yeah. Um, but they are not free. You have to become a paying member mm-hmm. to get the access to that. Yeah. Next person, do you consider the short interest of stock in your analysis? That's a very good question. Uh, Historically, yes, I had looked at it. It's something that I've always looked at. Um, I haven't been able to find from research that, uh, academic research, that it it does what um, investors think it does as being a a bad sign. And I have to say that also looking at my best performing and worst performing um, investments in the past, I did not find it to be true that it was a good indicator. So like some people had said, well, that stock that you bought, say like Weight Watchers or something, was heavily shorted, and then it went down a lot, and it was a uh, big loss for you and all that sort of thing. Or or even if it wasn't – it was a huge paper loss at one time, even when it came back somewhat over time. You know, So the things – for instance, not just stocks that you lost money on, but stocks that at some point from the point you bought them to their lowest point – were huge drops. Weren't those always stocks that were heavily shorted? Yeah. And in a lot of cases, there were stocks that were heavily shorted. The problem is that a lot of the big winners were also stocks that were heavily shorted. So I actually looked um, when I was doing singular diligence and um, did some sort of checkups on it as to what sort of things indicated um, risks and things. And the way I did it is not um, what... So what people do a lot is they say, okay, well, I'll learn from my mistakes by sort of gathering up all the things that are um, that lost money and seeing what common um, traits they share, mm-hmm. right? The problem with that is, you know, instead of doing that, what I did is I separated into the top 20% of stocks that did well for me and the bottom 20%. And I looked at it from the perspective, well, what did the th- um, stocks that do badly have in common that they did not also share with the stocks that did well? And the problem is that um, there were characteristics I could find having to do with leverage and things like that. But um, basically leverage and um, some um, uh, basically leverage, both operating leverage and financial leverage. Mm -hmm. Um, But what they uh, did not, unfortunately what was not specific to the stocks that did badly is the short interest. So yes, the stocks that did very badly had high short interest, but so did the stocks that did really well. That was also the, thing for the the two things that people ask a lot about are should i avoid stocks with high short interest and should i avoid stocks where people think that like the industry is going out of business or something Mm -hmm. right the problem is that in all the things that i looked back at my own decision making that those categories are both the biggest losers and the biggest winners see if people short a stock a lot like say best buy or something people like short it a lot and think it's going to go out of business or something and then it doesn't yeah it actually recovers a lot and turns out to do really well, even if the business results aren't well. Mm-hmm. People forget that, that, oh, yeah, that was something that people thought was going to go out of business. It, yeah, didn't, it didn't. It was shorted a lot, and it turned out to be a really good decision that I bought it or whatever yeah. if they, I'd done that. Whereas they do remember that, okay, so that what happened to you know Barnes & Noble or whatever. So um, short interest, I think you're likely to get really – good or really bad results the problem is that i haven't found it to be the case that you know that it can get really bad results and also with academic research i haven't really found good indications that um of any research papers that have really said that they can prove that uh it's always an indicator for bad results i think it will increase the volatility in your portfolio if you buy things that have high short interest Mm -hmm. but i don't know that it'll help or hurt returns got it it's a great answer. Next question. How long of a track record do you need as an individual investor before you can say that you have alpha in the market? 
<laughs> um, there's no answer to that. I mean, there's there's just no answer to that. Um, it really. That's. I mean, if you ask, if you were to if give you ask money, academics, they'll tell you that Buffett doesn't. Yeah, sure. I if, mean, some do. So we'll say that he does, but there are that they will try to explain that you know he doesn't. If you were to give your money to another manager, right? How long of track? What would you be focused on? Would it be their track not, record, no. the process, not the, the way track, they think? their process? Okay. Yeah, not the track record at all. So you wouldn't think about, let's say, you literally wouldn't think about. I mean, I would think about or... the track record, but not in the overall situation. Uh-huh. I mean, I've talked about this a little bit before, but like there's someone who was talking to me about how great someone's record was over the last eight years or something. Um, but I saw what the stocks were yeah, and I would never trust them with my money because they were all highly levered companies. They were highly levered and they were all levered to sort of one. uh, No, no, no. They were all levered (laughs) to sort of one macroeconomic idea, which they were right about. Uh Right. But so they were sort of right about a credit cycle or something, let's say in that case. Um, and so all their bets had to do with sort of the biggest leverage bets that you could make on, uh, the idea that you knew how the, uh, recovery in the economy would work and stuff. Basically Uh that you knew the economy would recover a lot. And um, interest rates would stay really low. Sure. So they were sort of right about the idea that interest rates stayed very low and unemployment was very low. If they'd been wrong about either one of those things, that interest rates went up a lot or that unemployment stayed high, um, then you know they wouldn't have been successful. Mm-hmm. So I think you need to look at what the process of how they made the decisions. Um, not just how they made the decision, but what sort of things they bought. Sure. Um, so it depends. I've seen some investors who have really good results but i wouldn't uh trust them um on the other hand uh and then then there are investors who i think have really good results and i can look at how they got it and while it's not my um uh approach i can understand that um uh that they have added alpha and stuff and that they have skill that way i guess that's a real way of talking about it Mm -hmm. to me is uh, if if they have skill that way and so um uh, so like Monish is a good example of that, right? Mm-hmm. That's someone who has a totally different approach than I would ever have, but it's clear that that approach has worked over time and you mm-hmm. can see that in the results. Um, but then there are other people that I, that have good results for a while that I'm not sure, you know, if you can explain it through things other than, you know, if you want to say luck or something, I mean, that becomes difficult to explain differences between skill and luck and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think this, this um, person is interested in, he's asking a lot of questions about being a do it yourself investor okay. and sort of how to validate if this is like a pro if it's working for him, I guess you could say, uh, cause right. he asked another question saying, so then I also wonder how long, of time you would give yourself as a do-it-yourself investor or stock picker versus indexing or handing your capital to a manager that you can trust. Yeah, I would just do part index, part yourself, and, just and do, as yeah. you gain confidence, switch it over. I mean, I think I mentioned once before that that's actually how I started as a teenager is that I put yeah. all of my savings into an index fund. And then as I found stocks that I really um, was sure that I could value and that I believed in stuff, um, I then took money from the index fund and put it in that stock instead. I didn't hold cash. And then eventually, over a few years, I went from 100% in index to 100% in stocks that I picked yeah. myself. Mm-hmm. So I think it makes sense to do it with the stocks that you like yourself rather than doing it from the perspective of, like, you have belief in yourself. I mean, this is a difficult one. This goes into all sorts of other things. It can be anything else. People always ask about this, about, like, want validation for the basically that you have talent, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. So the same thing that you get this with people who are, like, starting out writing or something. And they're like, oh, it's really bad. And how do I know that I have uh, talent or whatever and things like that? And you want external validation for that sort of thing. And the unfortunate truth is you just have to keep doing it for a really long time. And you'll be bad at the beginning. And then you'll get better over yeah. time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And then the last question he asks is, which index should I compare myself with? Is the logic that if I only uh, have U.S. large cap stocks, I should compare myself with S&P 500? And if I, for example, own only Swedish stocks, should I compare myself with the Swedish stock exchange and so on? Yeah, I mean, for, I mean, like a lot of people use S and P five hundred. Yeah, I right? use the e- the cheapest Vanguard one for the S and P five hundred so, for a client letter. For so the, why did you do that instead of comparing it with like a, a small cap type? Right, which you sh- which you should theoretically do, yeah. but it gets very complicated that way because if you keep doing that, and I was talking about how like academics do this and stuff, if you keep doing that, eventually you don't compare Warren Buffett to an S and P five hundred or something. You compare Warren Buffett to a um, low beta yeah. um, set of stocks, but he chose to do low beta. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the things that he chose to do. You know what I mean? Not that he sought out low beta, but that's something that he chose in terms of all the stocks that he has. So you can break it down into factors of saying, okay, so your actual stock picking, how much did that add? Same thing. I mean, in a sense, are you restricted that you can only own Swedish stocks or are you choosing to invest in Sweden? Mm-hmm. I mean, for me, I can't find anything that can be a, an actual comparison normally. Because, um, like, for my own portfolio in the past, I was willing to go anywhere. I mean, I invested 50% Japanese net nets. Yeah. And historically, I've been 0% in Japanese. Um, And then a few years later, I was down to 0% in Japan again. So I had often been 100% U.S., and then I was um, 50%, and then when they went up, over 50% in Japanese stocks um, and and Japanese microcap stocks. Um, At the same time, people would think that my strategy would change because I would own, like, um, uh, you know, a bank or something a big stock i owned a couple big stocks um when mostly i own micro caps and things like that so there's no direct comparison that way Mm -hmm. um i think the easiest way to do it is just over the long term compare yourself to um probably the the sort of um the the one that i use in the client letter is the vanguard uh, s&p 500 that had the lowest expense ratio that Mm -hmm. i could find um so basically just an actual fund of some sort instead of an index um now they're basically almost the exact same thing but you pick an actual fund and you say well people could have bought this mm-hmm. i mean that's why the way i did it is look if you did nothing about how to pick a money manager or something you could have just said oh well i'll buy the this because this is what you would think is right i'd say the s&p 500 is the one that maybe not but i would say the people on just in general, the general public would say, oh, yeah. that's the market. Sure. Right. Yeah. So if they said, I don't want to make any decisions, they just buy the S&P 500 every month, put in their savings into it and never touch it. Right. Yeah, I would agree. So that's the one that I would use. In terms of comparing it yourself, that gets incredibly complicated. Like, because at the end of, um, so for instance, in the client letter thing, I compare it to the S&P 500. But if I actually compare to what investors are most similar to me, like blogs I read, um, investor letters I read and things, a lot of them had horrible time yeah. in the last six yeah, months of better. last year. Yeah. yeah, yeah, way worse than the S&P 500. Even a lot of like micro guys that I follow, they had a really yeah, tough, horrible. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But they're also, but then in, there are other years where if you had looked at the way that I looked at it in the early 2000s, um, I would have said, oh, I did amazing against the S&P 500 in 2002, 2003. But if you looked at a lot of value people, they were doing very similar numbers to what I was doing, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Because it was like a really good period for that. So in a sense, you can look at it and say, I understand that, oh, a lot of the reason I did badly this year or something is because I own microcaps or mm-hmm. whatever. So you can compare to other people who are similar to you. The danger with all of that is unless you have that one yardstick, then you start. You can cherry pick either good or bad. If you're the sort of person who's kind of a depressive person, whatever, you always pick out the people who are doing better than sure. you. Sure. And I've talked to people that way. Who I've talked to people who beat the S and P five hundred, and complain about these people. How are these people doing better than me? Yeah. There's always someone who's doing a lot course, better than you. Yeah. Always. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Probably not the not a good way to think about <laughs> no. it. 
Um, let's see. Oh, this is interesting. Do you think it's possible to be a successful investor today without using the internet? <laughs> hmm. Have you ever been asked that? No, I've never Neither been asked that. Um, hmm. Maybe not. I mean, because we use a lot, there's a lot of like scuttlebutt things you do with the internet, right? I do a lot Obviously, of scuttlebutt with the internet and that's also how I get uh, SEC filings. Yeah. yeah. Okay, but let's say if you just could print the SEC filings, do you think that? Well, I did in the early days of getting started investing. I should point out that I, from the very beginning, used the internet. Mm-hmm. I'm just young enough that when I started investing as a teenager, um, they had just started, um, I guess, had they just started Edgar? Maybe. Um, so we're talking, um, the later 1990s. Mm-hmm. So, but, but before the mid 1990s, everyone would have had to do it completely without the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, actually Buffett talked about it in the interview that he did, um, recently, he talked about how the internet has made it, uh, the internet and other things has made it much, much harder to outperform. Um, the two reasons why it's hard for him to outperform is one, the huge amount of assets that he has, but two, that he used to go to the, um, that he used to go to uh, find out information about banks, insurers, uh, all those things, uh, uh, railroad companies, whatever. He used to go in person um, to learn about it from some sort of library thing mm-hmm. that was like a you know government paperwork and things that he could find. Um, and you get that when you read about the if you ever read like Ben Graham's memoirs or something. What he actually did to find cheap stocks and things is by going in person to um, request records and things. Um, so yeah, I mean, it makes it harder. Um, I would say, yeah, you probably probably need to use the internet today. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also, I think, it's to your advantage. Obviously, like you can get a lot more information. You could scuttle. I mean, look, you're on. Yes. You always look at um, you know Google Maps of like satellite right. images. Absolutely, and, yeah. And you could go to you get other information that probably would be a lot harder back in the day. Like even going to like Glassdoor and learning about the culture of the company yep. or if they have any if they won any awards or you know yeah. whatever. Yeah. On the other hand, you can read the books by Ben Graham, Phil Fisher, early things about Warren Buffett and his biographies and stuff, and see how he did it. Um, you could probably do those same things today. Sure. And they would work at least as well. I mean, one danger of the internet is that I, that I do see is that people kind of um, expect that they can find information really quickly, and then if they don't find it, it's like not out there and stuff instead of st- trying to really drag it down. But you can use the internet in a very, uh, very investigative way. So I, I think, yeah, I think you probably need the internet today. Cool. We got two more good questions. Okay. For the next thirty years, if you had to choose, would you rather hold the S P five hundred fund or the Berkshire or Berkshire Hathaway, and why? For the next thirty years, mm, S P five hundred. Really? Because I don't know what's going to happen after Buffett and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and you is, do know that America, you do feel strong about America's prospects and future. Or next yeah, thirty years, enough. Yeah. yeah, and over thirty years, the starting price isn't that important. Um, at what you buy a stock, uh, so the fact that I think the S and P five hundred is a lot more expensive than Berkshire right now isn't necessarily a problem. So over thirty years, yeah, it just lowers the risk that you would have something go to zero or something. Obviously, it's just that Berkshire's a financial company. I don't know who will be running in the future. Mm-hmm. Those are the only reasons. Yeah, and then he also asked same person says, "Do you think it's a good idea to hold Berkshire?" or S&P 500 index instead of cash. So kind of what we were talking about earlier, yeah. when you have no more attractive stock picks, what about beginning with hundred percent of capital invested in Berkshire or an index and then allocate capital when you find a truly good stock pick? Yes. That's so what would you, you rather use, I mean, let's say not over 30 years, but let's say 
um, over the next five or 10 years? Would you rather do that with Berkshire or the S&P 500? Mm, I think Berkshire will... I think Berkshire's better than the S&P 500. We'll see if it outperforms something over the next 10 years, but uh, I I think it's a better value. Um, for someone just asking the question now in terms of like, say the person asking is not me. So um, I would say, yeah, 50% in the S&P 500, 50% in Berkshire, and then each time you find a new stock, let's say you your goal is that you want 10, your 10 favorite stocks. Yeah. Okay, and then take 5% from each each time you buy a new stock. And do it that way. And then mm-hmm. eventually you'll get rid of Berkshire and you'll get rid of the S&P 500. I should say, I mean, Berkshire is not the best stock out there. It's a huge stock. It's very hard for it to get really great returns in the long run. The S&P 500 is expensive and it's very hard for it to out. I mean, it can't outperform itself. Um, but I mean, for it to even perform uh, above single digits sure. for, for the future, right? So it'd be very hard for it to achieve 10% or better for a long time in the future. Um, there are stocks you can find that will do that. So, um, yeah, I'd say... Buy, uh, put half your portfolio in Berkshire, half your portfolio in S&P 500, and then gradually take it down to find, yeah, 10 stocks probably. What made you do that back in your early days? Because I didn't know anything about investing. Mm-hmm. So until I got very comfortable with a company, I didn't want to put any of my money in it. You just diversify. I mean, it's like Buffett says, you diversify when you're... Uh, you diversify away ignorance when you don't know things. Yeah. If you know things, you don't need to diversify. So at first I didn't know anything. So you diversify across everything. And then what you do is um, as you feel that you know a company really, really well, then you buy that. So like as an example, I, I, you, I would get to the point where I decided in the, in the 90s that um, like J&J Snack Foods, um, which is a very simple company, is something that I understood um, well enough that I would be more comfortable owning that than I would this bu- set of businesses, the S&P 500, which I don't really know about. Sure. So at that point, then you you move into owning that or Village Supermarket or Activision or any of those things that I bought then. Um, so, yeah, I mean, mostly it's just things that you're really, really comfortable in. And so you compare it to being diversified. If you would feel more comfortable being diversified, with all that money, then having it in the stock, then you don't understand that stock well enough. You're not confident enough about that stock. You shouldn't own it. If you think that moving money from the diversified thing into that stock is somehow increasing your risk, then that's a mistake. You sure. don't understand that business well yeah, enough. Yeah, you shouldn't do so it. So it should feel comfortable that way. Now, the problem with cash, there are a lot of reasons why I don't like the idea of holding a lot of cash. I think all the big mistakes that I would make would be when I have cash, basically. And then I certainly think that that's true with Buffett. Is that, it because you feel like a... Um, almost like pressure to redeploy yeah. it as, as fast Absolutely. as possible. Yeah. yeah. And especially now that I'm, uh, have clients with that where they can see that they have, you know, a certain percentage in cash or something. Sure. Of course, yeah. if you, they don't want to be paying you money to hold things in cash. And sure. Stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, and that's what, that's why professional, um, and that's why institutions and things hold almost, you know, no cash and probably bu- pay too much for things and stuff like that. Cause they don't feel comfortable enough holding cash. Yeah. It's a good thing to feel comfortable holding cash until you decide to be a hundred percent in something. I don't like the idea of holding cash all the time, but yeah, it would be good if you, if you could feel, um, that holding cash isn't wasteful in some way. I mean, it is wasteful. Um, but if you were willing to be patient enough to, um, to, you know, sit there and not buy anything for a year or something. But I've sat with 30 to 50% cash for, you know, over a year at times. Mm-hmm. So cool. Well, that was a great rapid fire question. So I want to thank everybody who participated in that and whether they sent in an email or DM or uh, just tweeted at me. If you do want to do that, like I said, at the beginning of the show, 
feel free and we will sort of aggregate them and then chat about them on the show. You could DM me, tweet me, or email me at info at focusedcompounding.com or jeff at gannononinvesting.com. Mm-hmm. If you want to get access to Jeff's memos that we send out, uh, there's two. There's a premium memo and there is a free memo. Premium is for whoever becomes a member and then the free obviously is you just enter in your email. The premium is a watch list. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. you get a list of what stocks they plan to write up in the future. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And you could follow along from that. Go to focusedcompounding.com and for the free part, just enter in your email. Uh, the premium watch list become a member use the podcast promo code if you like saving money which is podcast and that's it Mm -hmm. other than that thank you so much to everybody for listening if you do like the work that we're doing here feel free to go and give us a rating and review on itunes that helps us out a lot and uh, it sort of spreads the word yep and we'll like that so thank you to everybody have a great week we'll see you in the next one take care Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com, where you can read stock ideas written up by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. Thanks for listening.